The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Working Artist Project. And tonight, we have a very special guest, the one and only Mr. Victor Goins. And uh, he's definitely a a hero of sorts for me and Greg. And real quick, Greg, before you say anything, I just want to say the first time I saw Mr. Goins was, I think I was in the sixth grade or seventh grade somewhere in there um maybe yeah and they came come from jackson mississippi originally in the in the big band came to jackson and played at thalia mara hall i'll I'll never forget this because hurling was in the band and it my whole brain exploded man and like all the cats in the band were really nice to me and and it's just an experience you never forget as a kid because you're just like man i want to be like those guys man i want to play an instrument good you know and uh so you know, he he doesn't even know, but those all those guys were an inspiration for me to be good or try to be good at least. You know. Well, you totally beat me too because I was going to tell you about the first time I met Victor. Hey. <laughs> and it's and it's it's kind of I guess it's it's um, you know, you know, you're in good company when people have the same story to share about you know the same people. And I met Victor, Mr. Goins. Um, I should say, Mr. Goins. Excuse me. Uh, I met Mr. Goins when I was about 16 years old, and uh, Alvin Baptiste and Michael Polera told me that he was playing at Snug Harbor. So I went to the show with my mom. It was a Sunday night, and he played the entire first set, and he had his like his tenor, his clarinet, his soprano, I believe, out. And he played the entire set and did not play any clarinet that night. So on the set break, <laughs> on the set break, my mom was like, hey, you know, excuse me, Mr. Goins, you know, my son plays clarinet. He, we came here to see you play and he's really excited and would love to hear you play. And so Vic took me upstairs and gave me a, a clarinet lesson, t- told me about the Closet book and and kind of grilled me about the history of the clarinet. And um, and then he, when he, they went back on for the next set, he actually, he was like, ladies and gentlemen, we usually don't start the set with a ballad, but tonight... We got a gentleman in the house and he plays, he plays clarinet. So I'm going to play some clarinet for him up front. And, uh, and yeah, that, it like literally blew my mind. And it was like one of the most, most amazing um, experiences I had had in my life and, and, and definitely treasure moments like that and definitely feel inspired and motivated to, to, you know, pursue music after meeting people like Mr. Goins. That's amazing, man. I'm a little jealous that you got them too. So, you know, but it's it's okay. <laughs> but that just speaks to the reach that that they have, you know, certain musicians have, and it's a small community. And and a lot of times 10 dudes inspire five to ten thousand young musicians and not even really uh realize it. So, but without further ado, why don't we bring in Mr. Goins and we'll we'll get the show started because I know y'all ready to hear from him. Hello, gentlemen. Mr. Goins, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you all so much for having me here today to, to talk to you all. This is it's, um, humbling to hear the experience of, of how you all met me initially. You know, when you say sixth grade, I was like, oh, man, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of remember that gig that, that Greg is speaking about at Snug Harbor, you know, because I do not usually start a set with a ballad. I usually start trying to get my energy up high and then kind of bring it down, you know? So both of those are very, very indicative of how I approach what I do. You know, what's really cool is I was actually cleaning out my, my, um, some of my stuff at my dad's house and I came across the, uh, the CD you signed for me that night and you had left me your, your name and your phone number on a snug Harbor bar napkin. And so I still had that inside the CD and then on the uh, the CD cover, you wrote, practice, practice, practice. My <laughs> Victor. <laughs> that sounds like me. Yeah, that's your motto. So maybe that sounds like you. And I, and I feel like that quote really um, embodies how I see you and also had a profound influence on on everything I did after that point. And so maybe we could just kind of start on on your your younger years and, and maybe like 
did you always know you wanted to be a musician? How did that that fire and that that desire to to um, to perform start with you? Um, I think I always knew I wanted to be a musician, whether it was going to be a performer or an educator. Um, I was just very, very fortunate to be exposed to people who had a, a great deal of uh, dedication to me as a musician. Um, I remember my first teacher was a, a nun named Sister Juliana when I was in third grade. That's when I first started playing the clarinet. And then there used to be a gentleman who traveled around the archdiocese. It's Truding. I don't remember his first name. It might have been Al, but I remember Truding used to travel around to each Catholic school in the area, and we would have lessons once a week or twice a week. But then the next person was Alan Dejon from Dejon's Olympia Brass Band. And um, and his, his son is a tenor player, you know. So um, and Dejon, he, he, was, he was unique in that even though I had my lessons at my school, he would let me go with him to Epiphany Elementary School to to study and all like that. So I kind of got some extra stuff along the way. By that time, it was I was starting to kind of show a better interest than all of the rest of the kids in elementary school. The fad had worn off of them, but for me, it was starting to become a little bit more serious, you know. And then by the time I got to junior high school, I met a gentleman who would be a profound influence on me named Mr. Donald Richardson at Bell Junior High School. And I learned more in a year with Mr. Rich than I had learned in the previous five years of playing clarinet. He was just that much of an influence. He was really dedicated. At a time when um, high school and middle school band directors were influential inside of what kids would do. And then, um, of course, I went to St. Augustine High School next and interacted with Mr. Hampton, Mr. Bluen, Mr. Winchester. By then, it was becoming obvious, not just to me, but to everybody around me, that music was probably the direction I was going to go into. And... Um, in addition to all of that, though, to you talk about the energy that kind of um, made things kind of work. There were when I was in elementary school, there was a, a high school, Jesuit high school in New Orleans, and they used to have an elementary school honor band. And um, we would get together. All the kids in the in the greater New Orleans area would audition for this band. So I auditioned. I, I made that band. It also happened that Winton was in that band and Branford was in that band, too. When we were in elementary school, fifth and sixth grade. So, um, you know, we and that kind of camaraderie and competitiveness started to generate itself at an early age. Then when we got into high school, we started auditioning for all state type of things, you know, orchestra, jazz bands, even though we tended to play in the orchestra, Winton and I, Branford played in the concert bands. And um, so, you know, by then I was really into that. I really thought I was going to be a classical clarinet player, to be honest with you. That's really where I was headed at. Until one day I was um, hanging out at the Marcellus house and, and went and played a recording of um, John Coltrane playing Giant Steps. Really played Countdown. And man, it blew my mind. You know, by then I was already interested in playing sax, but when I heard that, I was like, that's it. That, that's where it's at. Nothing else is going to be nothing else. So while I, I still study classical music, I was really, as the book would say, chasing the train. You know, I was, I was really trying to figure it out then. Obviously, I was exposed with Ellis Marcellus. When I went to college, I, I pursued an uh, undergraduate in music education. But quickly, I realized, while I respect educator, because I am one, I wanted to play. So I, I finished my degree in music education, but the whole time I was trying to learn how to play better. And another conversation between Winton and I suggested that if I wanted to get better, I needed to study with his dad. And... Although I knew Mr. Marcellus, I knew him as Winton's father. And I had been around him at NOCA a little bit when they were in high school. I didn't go to NOCA. I would hang out there a little bit, but I didn't go to school there. But I started taking lessons privately with him. And then that had a profound influence on me and a drive to want to do what I ultimately started doing. You know, so, but that, that drive has always been in because um, my mother and father, you know, particularly my father, he was... Some people would describe him as a workaholic. I just describe him as a person with an extraordinary drive to make sure that we as a family had everything that we needed, even if we didn't have everything that we wanted. You know, so that's a work ethic that I am proud to hold out on the flag and proclaim that that's why I get my work ethic from my dad. Yeah, that kind of leads into my my question. I was going to ask you about your focus, because to succeed on a level that you have, you've had to seem like you were focused from the first time you picked up the clarinet all the way through now, you know, so how, how can some, how can other people kind of harness that? And like, what, what was the secret to that? 
you know, I don't know if I was, I, I think I was focused when I was younger too, because there were only two things that I was really interested in doing, playing music or playing baseball. And I was good at both of them. I could have, I could have gone to the next level in baseball, but I decided to go in the direction of music. And I think one thing that really um, made me realize the need to be serious, serious about what I do is I spoke to, um, I used to play duets with my high school band director, Edwin O'Reilly Hampton, Mr. Hampton. And um, on one day we were playing duets and maybe he felt like I wasn't as serious about playing the duets as I had been on other times. So in the middle of a duet, he just stopped playing. He said, you should put your clarinet up, man. Don't play. You're not serious today. I was like, really? He said, yeah, just, you don't have to, we don't have to play. He said, but if you're going to play, be serious. If you're not, don't play. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I put my clarinet up that time. But from that point on, we we got together to play duets with anybody. I was always serious. I I never took that luxury for granted, you know. And um, from that point on, I said I was going to be the best version of myself that I can be. You know, I aspire to to reach the heights of many of the people who historically have been our mentors and our um, people we aspire to be like. But I always said I was going to be the best version of me I can be. About how old were you when this happened? I was about 14 or 15. I was a, I was probably a sophomore in high school. Yeah, that's that old school education. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely old school. <laughs> and you know it's funny too, man, because that year, well maybe the next year, he gave me a clarinet solo to learn to be featured at the band concert. It was called Clarinet on the Town. I never forget it. You know, man, and 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 by then I was I was starting to learn how to really play. And um, it's funny because I didn't practice it. He gave it to me at the beginning of the school year. So while the football season's going on, I should have been practicing it, but I wasn't practicing it. So with football season, then we went straight into concert season. He said, okay, look, let's start working on that piece. Well, I hadn't even looked at it. So, man, you know, by then I had to look at his crazy fingers in it and some weird thing. He wanted me to have it memorized for the concert. I was like, oh, man, I got memorized this? Wow, okay. So I started working on memorizing it. And they had this one little section that would always get me. I mean, there's always one section of a piece that's a problem. And I never forget that. Um, I finally got it together and we were on the concert. I can remember this like it was yesterday. I was playing a piece and when we got to that, that difficult section, I played through it the first time, but it had a recapitulation in it. I played through it the first time, I was like, I got it. Nah, I played through it, the sedge, I'm home. And when it came back the second time, man, it snuck up on me so fast. I just stopped playing because I couldn't remember what it was. I stopped, but I was able to jump back in really quick. But by then, the damage had been done. I was like, wow, man. So afterwards, Mr. Hemp looked at me. I was like, okay. He used to call us all champ. He said, okay, champ. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, man. I that part out. So then the next year, he gave me the chance to play the, the Weber Constantino. Greg knows that. One of the, the clarinet works that we all have to learn. And man, look, I started st studying that from day one, I said, no, this is not going to be a repeat performance of Forget Something. As soon as he gave it to me, I studied it the whole year. And then I ultimately played it on the concert that year. You know, But that was like a lesson to me. It was like, you cannot practice if you want, but at that moment, it's going to get you. It's interesting too because i guess that's the, one of the the things that i learned about studying classical music in college is that like when there is a section like that you know it's coming uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's no way there's no way around it it's it's, it's a little different than i guess improvising uh, you know improvising a, a solo or something like that where maybe something out of your reach happens and you can't get it but you know classical music it's like yo you know measure 43 is oh, coming yeah. up it's coming <laughs> up and not point. only that everybody knows um, measure 43 is coming up and they usually know it with you you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every everyone in the audience has their score too. Right. Like, I wonder if you can play measure forty three. <laughs> but but maybe this would be. It. <laughs> but but you know, I I know you have such a a deep respect for for classical music and and um, and I was wondering how maybe you could speak to this as someone who is like how, how do you see classical training 
interacting with uh, jazz education in uh, you know for today's young people, people like myself and and and, and even cats who were like 15, 16 years old who don't want to learn the etudes. Uh, what's the value Man, in, in studying that you like corrected that? that? I don't know if I consider you one of the young people no more. <laughs> <laughs> right, you old, man. Oh, bro. <laughs> All right. Yeah, man, you got one of the young people. You got too much hair on your face, man. You can't call yourself a young people. <laughs> but anyway, in answering your question. COVID, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I would tell young young musicians, younger musicians than myself, certainly that you go, younger musicians, that includes you. Okay. <laughs> I would tell them that. There's clarinet training, and then there's non-clarinet training. There's music training and non-music training. So the problem is people let the commercial distinction between all of these things get in the way. You know, so if, you should you should aspire to play all kinds of music. You know, as a clarinet player, we should understand the New Orleans tradition, obviously, if we're from New Orleans. If we're not from New Orleans and a clarinet player, we still should understand it. We should understand klezmer music. We should understand uh, bebop. We should understand all of the music because it's part of a whole. And if you cannot play one part of any one part of the music, then it's like having a, a hole in your soul. Because you never know when you're going to get called to do that. And, and as this, this particular um, session we're doing is called the Working Artist Project, if you want to work, you got to be able to play. You know, so it don't matter what it is. Hey, man, you available to do this? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm available to do this. What are we playing? Okay, cool. What instrument you want? Yeah, okay. What time? Oh, I'll be there. Okay. The last thing I always ask about is the money. I always ask about all the other stuff involved in it. And then I'll say, okay, how much is it paying to make sure it's kind of in line with what's going on. But I want to know what kind of music we're playing so I can prepare myself. And also I think, you know, musicians should prepare themselves not for the gig that they're doing, but for the gig that they want to be doing. Too many times we prepare ourselves for the gig we have tomorrow. I'm preparing myself for the gig that's a, a year from tomorrow because that's the one that's going to actually help me prepare myself for the year from beyond that one as well. So, you know, I think it's important for musicians to understand all of that. And I don't think there's a classical music scale. There's not a classical music C major scale and a jazz C major scale. We like to use the bebop scale and the mixolinian scale and Dorian mode and all that kind of stuff. Those are all notes, you know, but we could talk about melismas and all of that kind of stuff if we study medieval Renaissance music. So that's why we study uh, early traditions of music and music history in school and whatnot. And if you don't go to school, that's why you have an obligation to find that information through some mentor or teacher that you can have. So I think it's all music. And like Duke Ellington would say, there's two types of music, good and that other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro. I like that. It's So I think you made some good points, like preparing yourself for the gig that's a year down the road. Like, especially for, for the young cast that are listening, it's something that you don't necessarily think about. You're just like, all right, I got this gig. I'm playing here with these people for this amount of time. But you forget that this gig is going to lead to your next opportunity. And, and so what you're saying is preparation. Uh, it's, that preparation is going to lead you to your next success. You know, do you, can you give an example of when you were playing a gig and then it led to something that was totally tw like 10 times bigger for you professionally? Well, First of all, it could lead to the next gig. It don't mean that it will lead to the next gig. It could lead to the next <laughs> right. gig. But could, I understand yeah. your point. It's well taken. You know, um, you know, I, I wish I had spent more time learning the early New Orleans clarinet tradition when I was in New Orleans. But unfortunately, this, the clicks and all of that stuff that exists inside of that prohibited me from being able to do a lot of those gigs. There were only two people, really one person I worked with when I was in New Orleans as a young man trying to play clarinet, and that was Don Vappy. And, and learning how to play that music through him was beneficial down the line because I got to meet Danny Barker. That was the one time I got to play with Danny Barker. And Don couldn't make the gig and Danny Barker subbed. And so I had a three-hour period to talk to Danny Barker. It was a duo gig, just he and I. And, you know, I was talking to him and, and uh, telling him all my grievances about what people, you know, have against me as a clarinet player and what I wanted to do and all. He said, man, just keep playing ignore every one of them and just keep playing, do the best you can, it will all work out. Specific to your question, though, I can think of one gig that that really helped me out tremendously. Um, when I moved to New York in 1989, after graduate school, and I was living in Jersey, 
Steve Wilson and I, a great alto player, was hanging out in New York at Sweet Basil's. We went to check out all Blakey in the jazz messages like everybody else at that time. And uh, we all hanging out after the gig, and there was a clarinet player named Bud Revels there. And Bud played tenor and clarinet like myself, and he used to sub for the Broadway musical Black and Blue. And so um, Bud couldn't make a series of gig, gigs coming up. So Steve said, hey, man, you know, Victor plays really good clarinet. Maybe he can sub for you on that gig. So I said, yeah, man, I'd love to. So Bud turned me on to the gig, and um, so I had to go there and check it out. And little did I know, Emery Thompson was on the gig, Big Emery Thompson. Now, that name may not be as familiar to you all, but that was Jamil Sharif's father, trumpet player. He passed away. And he was working all of the main show gigs in New Orleans, but he's now living in New York playing on Black and Blue. So luckily, Emery Thompson took me under his wing to bring me in from his inside point of view. And then I had the recommendations from the outside point of view. And I went there to check out the show and they showed me the book and I studied the book and all. I said, yeah, I can, man, I got this. I can do this. So I was subbing for a clarinet player named Bill Easley. And he would play some gig with Jazz on Lincoln Center anyway. So when I got on that gig, I didn't realize how important that gig would be because on that gig was um, Al McKibben, bass player with Thelonious Monk. Grady, uh, Grady what was Grady's last name? Tate? Grady Tate was on the gig. Um, Roland Hannon was on the gig. Sir Roland Hannon. Um, Jerome Richardson from the Thad Jones Orchestra. Haywood Henry from the Erickson Haw Hawkins Orchestra. Britt Whitman from the Duke Ellington Orchestra. I mean, it was just a cast of characters. And then they had three singers on there. Carrie Smith, Linda Hopkins, and Ruth Brown, who was going to prove to be very important for me. And also, that was a coming out party for Savion Glover. He played on, he, he danced on Black and Blue. So I got into that rotation of doing that because I was kind of prepared to make the gig. And so as I was subbing for Bill, hey, when Henry said, hey, man, do you play Barry? I said, yeah, I got a Barry. I, I play Barry. He said, you want to sub for me next week? I said, of course. So then I was subbing a Barry chair too. So when I wasn't subbing for Bill, I was subbing for Haywood. And, um, and it kept going back and around. So anyway, Bill Easley was also playing with Ruth Brown and it would play downtown wherever they would play in New York City. And uh, one time Bill couldn't make the gig. He said, hey, man, go do this Ruth Brown gig for me too. I said, of course, man. So I did the gig with Ruth Brown. I did a tour to Bermuda with her. And then that all came about that I just started getting in the rotation one after the other. And it just all went about so that when Bill Easley uh, left the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra, that was my chance to go into the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra. So to your point, and uh, Herlin used to always say this when we hang out. He would say that when preparation meets opportunity, there's an opportunity for prosperity to take place if you have it all together. So that preparation came together with just being in the right place at the right time and being able to deliver on the goods that everybody wanted. And I think that has been really uh, the key to my success. And I tell my students all the time, I say, man, I'm not the best tenor player. I'm not the best clarinet player in the world. But when people call me, the product is going to be clear. The brand is there. You know what you're going to get. You're going to get some, some unknowns up in there, too. I'm going to give you some unknowns. But you know I'm going to be there at the gig on time. You know I'm going to have all the right equipment. I'm going to wear the right clothes for the gig. I'm going to come there very, very well prepared. Yeah, see, I love that story, man, because it did lead to the next gig. It led to, like, sound like 50, 60, 100 a thousand other gigs, you know, that one gig, man. They still leave gigs. I'm still getting gigs See? for that one gig. <laughs> yes, indeed. Man, that's, that's that's so important. It's, that's funny because, like, Mr. Baptiste would always say that to me, too. It's like, you got to be at the right at the right place with the, at the right time with the right equipment oh, the right yeah. attitude. That's a lot of rights, but he's right. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> But uh, so so you know you you've spent so much of your life uh, in in higher education uh, from teaching at Juilliard and and also um, teaching at Northwestern University, and so you know with all the great advice that, that you just bestowed upon us, well, as a teacher, how do you see your role in in the young people's lives that that you you mentor and work with, and and like as a as a mentor, what is your goal? for success through the education system? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a different person today than I was when I first started. 
And it's not because I thought I knew everything when I started teaching because I didn't. In fact, most people think my first teaching gig was in music. It wasn't. It was in mathematics. I taught mathematics oh, wow. at St. Augustine High School. And my greatest teachers at that time were my students. And, and, and the first lesson I got from them was honesty. Be honest to let people know what you don't know. It's not a weakness to let people know what you don't know. It's a strength because if you realize you don't have that skill, then you can find somebody to help you with that skill. But if you want to try to, you know, masquerade or fall under the cloak of, of people not knowing what your uh, weaknesses are, then ultimately you expose yourself more. So I've changed a lot, you know, and I think my role now has become to try to help people find their the direction in which they want to go in. You know, and the past three years have been really uh, an educational opportunity for me. I'm, I'm in school working on a Ph.D., at Boston University. And um, I've had some students come in who were really talented. And I remember uh, this one young player, he, he's really, really talented. But what I normally would do for students, I noticed was really kind of turning him off in terms of the things I would give him at the beginning to kind of become familiar with him until I finally thought about it. I said, man, what are you interested in doing? Then he started telling me some things. So then I started trying to find ways to accommodate him and how he learns better, you know, and I've always known you have to adapt to your students. Many people will say students have to adapt to teachers. You know, you have to learn the way your teacher teaches. Well, that's one approach. But uh, there's a book by Paulo Ferrer called um, Oppression of the, uh, I can't remember the full title of it now. But anyway, in the book, the theme is that education is an exchange between multiple parties. And I've always believed that, that teachers are students, but students are teachers. And we exchange information along the way. And, and if you can embrace that thing, then all, everybody can learn. And it brings them closer inside of this, this circle of uh, learning. You know, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is what the name of the book is. By Paulo Freire from Brazil. He was a great scholar. So um, it, it's been interesting to try to put this together now. And that's the role I think I occupy. Now, how can I help my students and point them in a direction of where they want to go. Because I'm not going to see them into the promised land, but I can try to help them get their focus on to know where they want to go. Because I think I think all of you can find your way without any help. But the question is, how much of that haystack will you have to go through to find a needle? You look for a mentor so they can kind of reduce that search that what you want to deal with. You're still going to have to search. But if you can do less of a search, then you can maximize your time on this planet because time is the only thing that is not a luxury to us. It is is finite. We have a finite amount of time. So we can't waste our time. We have to make sure that we're using it in the best way we possibly can. I wanted to just kind of switch gears and, and uh, talk about band leading because you're, you're also a phenomenal band leader. And that, I think, comes with a different set of challenges than being a side man, you know, and you, you're both you know, equally like a great side man. And from what I hear, and also equally a great band leader, because I got friends who play in your bands. Like, how did you, what are some of the challenges that you, you, you saw, like, as you became a band leader and how did you overcome them? Like maybe the biggest two? Well, I was lucky. I, I, I played with Ellis Marcellus for a significant amount of time. And I was around him as a student for a significant amount of time. So one thing that helped me to be any aspect of the good band leader that I am, is comes from my experience with Ellis Marcellus. And in the, 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 the time when I joined him, it was myself, Noel Kendricks, and Reginald Veal. And he took us in more than just, we were not just sidemen. He, he mentored us on all aspects of the business. Like he said, hey, look, man, y'all need to get a ledger together. Y'all need to document this money that we're making so that you can file your taxes at the end of the day. You know, I mean, he, everything. He, he walked us through all the process. And and what I got out of that is that the business of jazz is business and everything is business. You got to be taking care of business. You know, you got music, you have to learn, learn the music. So that that was the experience that I had. And it, Ellis Marcellus also took care of us. He really took care of us. So as a band leader, I always try to reciprocate that by taking care of my band. How, you know, at, however I can afford to do it, I try to take care of them. So that's what I carry when I, I'm 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 thinking about the people who I want to work with. And um, I try to make sure I'm working with people who I can have more than just a musical relationship with. Um, because I think you have to 
the success of things depend upon the relationships that you build with people. You know, so if if all we have in common is the, the short period of time we play on the bandstand, then we don't really have that much in common. Um, but we can develop more in common. So like with Ellis Marcellus and I, he would he would go to the Little Professor bookstore on Carrollton Avenue near his home. Every week he would come back with another book. Hey, you know, I have this book called The Miseducation of the Negro Intellect by yada, yada. He would, it would always be a new book. So I said, yeah. So then I would go back to the bookstore after him. I said, I'm looking for such and such a book. They said, Ellis Marcellus just bought that book last week. I said, yeah, he told me to come get it. Then he'd buy another book. And then I'd go a week after him and they said, well, Ellis Marcellus just bought that book. We don't have it in yet. We'll get another copy for you. So the next time you bought the book, I went back over there and said, we bought you a copy. We knew you were coming. Because Ellis Marcellus <laughs> bought the book. You know, so it was that kind of relationship, man. You know, so I had a great leader. So therefore, it is only logical that I might have an opportunity to be a great leader if I choose to be. And if people perceive me to be, I don't, you know, everybody has their own perception. I'm sure a couple of people I cut loose don't think I'm a great band leader. But other people that <laughs> a while might have a different perception. But that's such a beautiful point too, and that's 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 definitely something I would say that you embody in in Mr. Marcellus and and a lot of the, the mentors that that I really admired is is y'all y'all walk the walk, you know. You don't really you don't really spend all day telling people what you do, and you're just like, hey, check this out. I've been shed this. Have a good day. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 you know, as as a as a student. A lot of times we can, the, uh, the greatest lesson is just being able to observe someone like yourself or, or Mr. Ellis Marcellus or something like that. Cause they're, those cats are always doing what we should be doing and living, living the lesson, you know? Um, what, what are some, so, you know, I, I know you spent a lot of time with, with E back in the day. And what, what are some of the things that, that you, you took from, from the years of playing with Mr. Marcellus? Well, there's nothing like being in the presence of greatness, you know. If you're in the presence of greatness, you don't have to ask a lot of questions. All you have to do is pay attention, you know. So I can remember, I remember we were in high school, went to Branford myself, and uh, the universities were touring around, you know. And, and he was really direct about the things. He didn't have no sugarcoat. He'd tell you what it was, and it didn't have to be vulgar or nothing like that. It would just be provocatively thought-provoking. It would be thought-provoking. So... One time, uh, Northwestern, actually, Northwestern coming to town to audition and went to an audition for Northwestern. So I was considering it, and I did, I, for whatever reason, I chose not to. And uh, But I had my clarinet with me, and, and I must have played something that wasn't to his uh, liking. And he said, hey, man, <laughs> you like that clarinet? I said, yeah, man. He said, you serious about it? I said, I am. He said, you need to sleep on that pillow. <laughs> I mean, put that clarinet under your pillow when you go to bed tonight sleep on it so it can get better. So, you know, that kind of, that was more thing to me because then sometimes it would just anger me, you know. I mean, if he told me something that made me angry, I wouldn't say anything for like days at a time. Once we were in Asia, he told me, he, he called us out for not being as plain as well as we could have. And so with some colorful words in it, which was very unique for him. It was when the, uh, his, his quartet was on the road in Asia in 1986 before he left New Orleans. So, and, you know, I, I, I didn't like being told I didn't sound good. You know, I didn't have to be, I didn't have to be told I sounded good as long as I wasn't told I sounded bad. <laughs> but he told me I sounded bad that day. So I didn't talk to him for about a week, man. We're on the road. I mean, it's only the four of us. We're an Asian. There's not a lot of English going on. So after about a week, you know, man, I'm every moment I'm practicing, making the gig and going on my own, practicing some more. And after a week, he said, you should get angry a little bit more often. You do better that way. <laughs> I was like, okay, oh, hey, all right. So that's how we broke that ice again. But, you know, he, he he just knew when to say the right things, when and let people have their own space. And all, man, you know, it was great. I love him. I loved him. You know, we 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 all the the world is a lesser place because he's no longer with us. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Absolutely. Man, that's I mean, in hearing that story, I feel like, you know, as a teacher, I always find myself questioning um, how to communicate information to students, especially when you know they can do better. And it's like, how how do you? Um, do you, I mean, as as just like a, as a teacher, like, do you? Do you have like different plays in your playbook or different ways? Like, you know, this 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 student is going to react 
really well to being angry, this student will probably shrivel up and, you know, like, do, do you have different ways of communicating that type of information to people based on their personality or you just, you just do you and that's it? No, I think you have to be a little bit more um, creative than just being me. I, I don't think everybody can handle me being me. <laughs> You know, I mean, some people can, but then other people can't. So you have to kind of read the person. I always say you have to know your personnel. You have to know who you can depend on, and then you have to know who you can't depend upon and and how you're going to have to help them along the way. So other people, I might just be very direct and say, you know, that didn't, that you could do better than that. Then the other person, I, I might say, well, what did you think about that performance? That's, that's what else for ourselves would do. What did you think about what you played? If you had to give yourself a grade, what would you give yourself a, a grade of? And so students say, oh, that's quite, quite generous with yourself. You know, A minus? Do you really think that was A minus material? I said, I had more like a C minus. We're not quite on the same page yet. How can we get these things a little bit more in line? So, you know, maybe what I was trying to do in those cases to try to get them to actually have a much more accurate ruler to measure themselves by. Because, you know, the foot ruler for them was much shorter than it was for me. It wasn't, it wasn't as accurate. I was like, you, know, you got to have a yardstick that's going to be 36 inches. It can't be 24 or 20. It's got to be a yardstick because you, you're going to be comparing yourself to the people out in the real world. And if you're not using the same unit of measurement, then you might fall short or overstep the, the boundaries and step off a cliff on the other side of it. Maybe it's the time for you to step shorter. So, you know, um, so I think there's many different ways to think about it. Like you said, Greg, you know, you have to, you definitely have to know your personnel though. That's something I really appreciate. And I always ask myself, that's like a, maybe a, a generational thing that, that may be lost as we move forward through time, because, you know, growing up, you know, I, I was fortunate to to work with, you know, take some lessons with Mr. Marcellus, uh, Kid mm-hmm. Jordan, Alvin Baptiste, and those guys, they kept it real <laughs> all the time. <laughs> right. You know, if, if things, they, they were just, and it wasn't offensive or anything like that. It was just like, this is what it is and take it or leave it. And, um, oh, yeah. but you know, when you were telling that story, I was I was I was flashing back to this conversation we had years ago, and I sent you a recording of me playing tenor, and, <laughs> and you got me so good. I'll never forget this. You were like, "All right, so on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your tenor tone? One being the worst, ten being the best." And I was like, "That's like a seven. You know, I said that. I was like a seven, and you were like, "Okay, now." <laughs> on a scale of one to 10, how great is John Coltrane's tone and how great is Sonny Rollins' tone? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and then at the end, so the conversation ended with like, so you mean to tell me that you're just one away from Sonny Rollins' sound? <laughs> I was you're like, right, oh, yeah, no, man, know, stop, please. <laughs> Well, you know, and the point is to that. But it was it was so true. Yeah, because, you know, I, I asked my students all the time, I said, who are your competitors? Then they start naming their colleagues in college. I said, no, no, especially the alto player, let's say. They say, well, you know, the person sitting next to me is my competitor or the other guy over there. I said, no, 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 no. Wes Anderson is your competitor. Kenny Garrett is your competitor. If you want to aim, aim high. Don't aim short. Because, see, you want the gigs that they're doing. You don't want the gig that the guy next to you doing because he's trying to get the gig that you're trying to get. But you're trying to get these other gigs that are way up. You want Sherman Irving's gig, you know? I asked a student that was an audition. I asked him, uh, I said, hey, man, he was a trumpet player. He was a really good trumpet player, too. He's coming into graduate school. I said, what is it you would like to do? He looked at me, he looked at me straight down. He said, I want to do what you do. <laughs> I, said, I said, I can tell you how to do that. I actually know how to do what I do. So... Let's get together. <laughs> he ultimately came to school. He came to Northwestern, but afterwards he found he didn't really want to do what I did because that called for a lot less sleep than he was willing to do. Yeah, he's still a good trumpet player, but in terms of succeeding at what he thought he wanted, no, he didn't really want to do that much because that caused too many other things and you know, that was really, really demanding of his time and his uh intellect, I think. That didn't diminish him as a player, but it certainly didn't put him where he said he wanted to be. Yeah, I think a lot of times people don't realize the sacrifices that you have to make to achieve any level of success. Oh, yeah. You know, like even like my, my daddy used to say, you know, whatever you do, be the most successful at it. If you're going to sh- sweep streets, 
Be the mo- be the best sweet street sweep. <laughs> so, you know, so you might need to street sweeps 12 hours a day. You know, whatever it yeah. is, there's going to be some some level of sacrifice to to achieve that goal. Absolutely. Now, and and speaking of that, like right now we're in a very difficult time uh for for the arts industry specifically. Uh-huh. And, uh, like where where do you see like a person who may be in school or just finishing school, which is even worse, trying to get on a scene with no scene? Like what 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 can advice can you give them to look forward to beyond uh, beyond the coronavirus? Well, I think one is that their their teachers had to take a certain amount of proactivity in helping them make it through this difficult time. You know, for my students, what I did is when we went to coronavirus, you know, I got all the complaints that one can imagine because I said we're going to do virtual recording. I'm the one who, who suggested to Jazz at Lincoln Center, hey, let's do some virtual recording. So Winton was like, what do you mean? I said, everybody record, they want independently put it together and we created a recording. So we did it the first time and then he understood what that was. So he said, let's do the next one. And we, we started doing so many. I was like, man, look, we don't have to do one every week. You know, we can do one every month or something, you know. But so I was doing that with my students too. And initially they would say, well, you know, I don't have, I only have a keyboard at home for the piano player. So I have a bad, my mic is not that good. And well, I can only do this, I said, I don't want to know what you cannot do. I want to know what you can do. Tell me what you can do. Show me what you can do. And then we're going to figure out how to make that better. So that's the first approach I had. And then I think about the two of you all, myself. I mean, we met in jazz clubs. We met at concerts and stuff like that. So we're not at concerts right now. So I said, well, how can I do something to change that? I said, okay. So let me call Bradford and see if he'll come in the Zoom room and talk to my students. So he came to the Zoom room and talked to us. I said, well, let me call Dick Oates. Let me call Vincent Herring. Every week we had a different noise. Let me call Brian Blade, see if he'll come in. Let me call, um, uh, what's Roy Hargrove's grandson name? Um, Marcus Gilmore. Let me see if Marcus, he came in. Then uh, Mark Gross would come in. Every week we had a different artist coming there. So what I kind of did is brought the club to the Zoom room so that they meet all of these great people along the way. We had Lou Donaldson in a couple of weeks ago. We did two hours of interview with Lou Donaldson, just talked to him for two hours. You know, another time we were doing something, we were playing points in for a concert we were, we were dealing with. I called Amar Jamal up. Hey, Mr. Jamal, you got a moment? Yeah. I said, I would like my students to play points in for you over the phone. They were amazed. They were like, is that really Amar Jamal? I said, I only have one person's number who's Amar Jamal. Yes. You know? So what I tried to do is keep them exposed to those great artists because the relationship that they make along the way are the ones that will allow them to have the opportunities because um, Ivan Taylor is a bass player who lives back in Chicago now, but he lived in New York for a little while. And one of the people who came to Juilliard to do a workshop in my improv class at the time was uh, Malgru Miller. And in that class, he and Malgru, Ivan and Malgru, some kind of way they bonded. So Malgru Miller ultimately used him in his band for two years. Another occasion, Hank Jones came to to do an improv class. I never forget when I called Hank Jones. I, I was expecting to speak to his management. I said, "Hello, may I speak to uh, Hank Jones?" He said, "Yes." I said, "I'm sorry." I, I said, "May I speak to Hank Jones?" He said, "This is Hank Jones." I didn't expect him to answer the phone. I, I was, "Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones." Okay. And I had this dialogue with him, and um, when he came to town, he liked what the students were playing so much that he recorded one of their pieces on uh one of his records, and um. You know, Ray Brown came in. I was same kind of thing when Ray Brown came in. You know, it, it was just those kind of relationships. So I think students still have to try to figure out how to make these relationships that they want to have in time this in, in in these times where you have to deal with social media and all of this. But I'm not an advocate of of I think social media has its place, AI and all of that kind of good stuff. But at the end of the day, I think people still have to be in the same room and talk to each other because there's a certain something that you can get from the energy of what someone says. You know, a text certainly doesn't display it. You know, they might be saying, yes, you might, can you do this for me? Yes. They, why yes? But really, they were right now, why yes in a hundred point font, which is like a yell, you know? <laughs> or it might be yes with a question mark on the end of it. You just don't know. So I think people have to figure out when they come out of this, how to get into the same room together. You know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Tim Tim Green wants to know if you can uh if you can let put that uh Lou Donaldson masterclass up online somewhere so he can watch it. He's it's writing going, in the comments. Yeah, tell him 
if you listen, and he he can find that. Um, I'm I'm on the board of the um, the National Saxophone Museum in St. Louis, and we're putting together um, an oral history of archives of, of great musicians. And one person I immediately said I would contact was Lou Donaldson, and I did my interview for that. It will be on their website soon, um, so you can go there and check it out, Tim. Um, I plan on trying to get Benny Golson to do something. Obviously, people of my generation, I've already talked to them and said they were going to do it. And there's some other great women. Um, I'm trying to get to Jane Ira Bloom to see if she would do one, you know. So, and she, she actually agreed. We just got to find the time. So, it's a, it's going to if it's not available on their website, it will be available. And the name of the the music store is Sax Quest, but the name of the organization that has the saxophone museum is called the National Saxophone Museum. It's located in St. Louis. That's right. Isn't the museum upstairs uh, from uh, the Sax Quest? It's like a candy store. candy shop for saxophone players. Yeah, My drummers, they're not going to like I think Tim, Tim and I. <laughs> I felt like a bull in a Johnny closet in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they got some beautiful horns up there. That's, that was, we spent some time out there last year. Oh, yeah. Um, That's crazy. But, you know, yeah. like what, what always amazes me is like every time we have a chance to connect, you, you have... I mean, you're doing so many things from, I mean, getting your doctorate right now to, you know, running a Northwestern's jazz program to playing at Jazz at Lincoln Center to the couple conversations we've had. You're always shedding. And how, how, man, how do you do all that? How do you, how do you, and, and especially like, how do you do everything on a high level? Like you said earlier, like you're keeping your brand on that, on that, that level. Well, you know, I'm, I'm probably just doing the best that I can without surrendering. I'm not giving up. You know, I'm in it for the long haul. So um, I'm, I'm pretty organized for the most part. In fact, I have running jokes with friends of mine that I say, oh, you know, I'm trying to get organized. They said, will you ever be organized? I said, well, I'm always trying, you know. Uh, and I prioritize things occasionally, you know, like with school, uh, meaning BU, Boston University, and PhD part of the school. You know, uh, there have been times when I've turned in papers, barely finishing you know, we're just reorganizing things just enough to get it in. Or, you know, I say, okay, this is, is going to have to be this grade. I'm going to have to accept what the time permitted me to do. But um, I think the organizational aspect of it is um, important. And when I see I have to get up earlier to try to get things organized, then I do because people kind of track when you're available after a while. You know, if they see like you're always available like four in the afternoon, then they start looking for you at four in the afternoon. Then when they start looking for me at four in the afternoon, I get up at four in the morning. Because I know they're not going to get up at four in the morning. And so I'm willing to work in those times or after midnight or something like that, whatever it takes. But that's basically my, my model, whatever it takes. In fact, my true model is, is Nike. Just do it. <laughs> I like that. Just get it done no matter what. Yeah, don't yeah, ask too much. Just way. do it. How much do you sleep every night? Just random question. You know, it's still early. I, I got a chance to get eight hours in right now, but it's it's getting to be less every minute. I, pro I probably won't go to bed before one or two in the morning the night again. I get about four to five hours of sleep every night. I need to get probably six or seven. But I if I get five, I'm pretty comfortable. Um, we're getting close to the end. And I we haven't really talked about any records and stuff like that. That I'm sure you want the people to know because they, they can go buy it or maybe you produce the movie. I don't know. There's no telling with you. Well, you got some <laughs> products for them to consume. <laughs> I, I definitely want to work on some movie soundtracks. That's what I'm studying right now to do. Um, you know, I've been checking out musicals. Like I, one of the things I'm checking out right now is The Wizard of Oz, believe it or not. And it was a, um, it's an interesting thing that, you know, we think about musicals and movies, but they're not the same. Musicals and composers have a much more uh, direct input inside of it. So if you check out The Wizard of Oz, the lyrics to the songs are very well, very, very related to the storyline that's going on. Um, but in a movie soundtrack, from what I have researched thus far, the music is more of a background kind of thing to support it. So that's been really interesting to check out. You know, I'm taking lessons with Roger Dickinson, one of our great composers in New Orleans right now, to try to learn how to be a better composer. Um, my last record that's out is Twilight um, and you know I got some other things in the can that I want to deal with and in fact I have two videos with a young man from Cuba named Yanni Braille, clarinet player and tenor player and um, we have a third video coming out in maybe a couple of weeks to a month um, so each year I go to Cuba we do a concert and record it 
he does all the production on it with his team out there. All I have to do is learn the music, and which is always a little bit of a hustle because when you play with those Cuban musicians, man, there's so many rhythms going on. I, I watched one video we were doing, man, and they dancing and playing and everything. I'm standing stationary. And somebody said, what are you thinking about? I said, I'm thinking about where is one? <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to create some things. I'm working on uh, where, where, not, can, where can we find on, the videos? Well, you might be able to find some of it on YouTube, for one. But, uh, you know, I guess if they reach out to us and contact me, I have some at home that I can cool. I can manage to, you know, distribute on his behalf. Um, but, you know, it's so much. And like right now, I'm trying to put out a track of a Christmas um, holiday song that I, I arranged for Jazz on Lincoln Center a year ago, but we didn't play it. We never played it. So... I just said, there's no reason for my stuff to sit in the computer or file, draw, or anything. All I have to do is be motivated and record it. So I tapped in on all my students that I used to, I had at Juilliard Northwest. And I said, hey, look, I got this song I want to record. I'm going to see all the music. Would you record it for me? So they all sent it back. So now I'm mixing it and putting it in a video in Final Cut Pro. So those are two learning curves I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with Logic that I kind of know a little bit about. Final Cut Pro, I've become more familiar with over the time. And I'm going to put it out. And at the end of the day, it may not compete with whomever in terms of the videos they've done, but I will have put something out that people get a chance to see. Yeah, I think I, I like that, especially now. It's just like, yeah, get the get the content, just produce content because people are at home and they want it. They ain't got nothing else to do but check out uh, Mr. Goins' records, check out his the videos he's producing. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know. So I'll have it out in the next two days. I'm going to get it out. I got to get it out before New oh, Year's wow. because the holiday season will be over. So tonight will be another <laughs> okay. late night of editing. <laughs> okay. And that's going to be on your YouTube page, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, I'm going to put it out on YouTube. I'll put it on Facebook. I'll put it on Instagram. Okay, yeah. cool. Perfect. So, yeah, y'all got to check that out. Yeah, man. So I, I think, I, yeah, I can't wait. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. But that's, 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 we're, we're, that's it. We at the end. <laughs> man, we, we appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, yeah, my name is Darian Douglas. Uh, yo, Mr. Goins, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your, your guidance and uh, showing us how it's done over all these years. And, and good well, luck on your project tonight. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You know, what you guys don't really, you didn't really see coming at you is the whole time y'all thought y'all were students, but y'all were actually teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I've been checking y'all out a long time, man, and I'm still learning oh, from y'all, so don't oh, stop. Man. Appreciate that. That's, I guess, that's what we learn. We learn from you too, though. The, the best teachers that are also Absolutely. students. Absolutely, you got to be an eternal. All right, yeah. y'all. We'll catch y'all next time. Awesome. All right, everybody, take care out there. Be safe.